0: I'm Adam Sifu. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features. That helped to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients. What are we talking about today, Scott?
1: Well, we're doing something special for our Swan song today, and we're going to go into all of our pet peeves and present basically a menagerie of pet peeves. And I want to introduce a guest with us today. Who is that? That would be Dr. Diana Alcorn, the infamous, Doctor. who's joined us before.
0: She's the, I think, the only repeat guest.
1: She is the only repeat guest, and we have worked together for decade. So we're very glad that she's here.
0: Am I right that she's also the only retiree we've ever had on the show? (laughs) You are correct about that at this time.
2: I'm not yet retired. I have two more days.
0: (laughs) Well, welcome. Welcome. So, yes, we're going to completely shuffle up our usual organization for this. And to explain, this is going to be the last episode of the STD podcast. We set out to make what was essentially a podcast version of our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence Based Guide. And we've now done 37 episodes, which more or less cover the 33 chapters in the book, plus a few more topics that we were kind of trying out. for the fifth edition. So instead of trying to flog a dead horse, we thought we would move on and let these episodes exist as sort of a podcast textbook.
1: Now, I don't want to be cut off here or anything. We do have the right to make more podcasts if we
0: think of them. We of course can. Um, doesn't mean anybody has to listen to them, but we can. Fair enough. Um, we should thank our listeners. Um, we do have, uh, for all the really nice, kind, helpful feedback we've gotten, it's actually been really wonderful. And please continue to recommend the podcast uh, to trainees of all levels or anyone else you think would be interested. As we said, it'll be um, living online and on the Access Medicine website. So Scott, back to today's topic.
1: Well, in the last 37 episodes, we have talked about our pet peeves as well as other topics and what annoys us about particularly the way doctors practice or the mistakes that they make. Today, we're going to flip that around and turn our attention to patients and talk about our pet peeves that relate to patients. And I should say it's not so much about patients as much as topics that patients bring up. And what are the things that we hear year after year that leave us just squirming that we're hearing it again? <laughs> um, now, to be clear, we love our patients. And as a matter of fact, we're all patients. And uh, to quote a wonderful book, we are all just taking turns caring for each other. Yeah.
0: And these are just pet peeves, right? They're those little irrational, idiosyncratic particular annoyances that we nurture like a pet. We share them here because we thought it would be a little bit of fun. And because actually you think we might learn something from them or other people might learn something from them. Um, So, Diane, why don't, as our return guest, um, you kick things off for us. What... What drives you crazy?
2: Well, one of the things that drives me crazy was really brought to mind once when I was in a socially distanced checkout line at Whole Foods, (laughs) which caused me to be standing in a part of Whole Foods I never go to, the part that has the so-called natural, so-called remedies and supplements and whatever else they are. And I was standing next to a shelf containing uh, a bottle of something called adrenal hormone supplement that was about two inches high and was $40 (laughs) and had a list of ingredients I could not identify. And so that experience just reminds me of how often people think something that is, quote, natural must be good for you, Um, that if it's in the health food store or in the health food uh, area of a store like Whole Foods, it must be good for you. It must be safe and effective. And furthermore, that if you buy it, you actually know what you're getting. When, of course, these supplements are not regulated at all, they're not shown to be safe or effective, and in fact, the manufacture of them is not regulated either, so you don't even really know what's in them.
0: Huh. <laughs> <laughs> she seems to feel strongly about that,
1: huh? I, I concur with all of that, I have to say.
2: There's a book
0: that I, um, I think I might have mentioned on a previous podcast uh, by Paul Offit called Do You Believe in Magic? And the subtitle is The Sense and Nonsense of Alternative Medicine. And it's an amazing book, which actually goes through sort of, you know, the 120-year history of how we got to where we are with the, you know, unregulated supplements and everything. And it's pretty amazing. Um, So Diane, I'm with you on that.
1: I do have a feeling people are going to be after us after this podcast,
0: <laughs> Scott. What about you? What do you got?
1: Oh, well, the one that kind of always irks me is you have so many patients tell me that they're drinking eight glasses of water a day as though that's a health prescription. And as a matter of fact, I always try to explain to them that if it was really better for you to drink so much water, your body would be triggered to make you thirsty to drink that much water. And of course, that's not true. And except for maybe some people trying to suppress their appetites, I know of no benefit to drinking a lot of water unless you particularly like your urine to be transparent and clear. <laughs> but other than that, I'm not aware of any benefits.
0: I always love the combination of the, you know, I'm drinking a glass of water today and I'm up all night going to the bathroom. What should I do? Right. The eight glass of water, my understanding is that that comes from like all the fluid that we have to take in in all sources over the course of a day. And so that doesn't recognize that 50% of everything we eat has fluid in it. So you don't need that. I think that's like where that came from.
1: I'm not really sure. But the idea is I mean, except for us, no other animal thinks to itself, boy, I better go drink eight glasses. We're, we've evolved. Our body's triggering when we're thirsty and it yeah. will figure it out. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Um, My first one is probably related to Diane's. It's all the things like over my entire career that have been sort of thought to be like a panacea at some time or another. And I totally wish I'd kept a list of these because as I sat down preparing for this, I thought of like... You know, turmeric, garlic, vitamin D. I remember a period that people were drinking noni juice, which I don't even know what that is. Apple cider vinegar, alcohol rubs, copper bracelets. And the thing now seems to be CBD oil, right? Like CBD oil fixes everything. You can either drink it, rub it on your scalp, rub it on your wrists. It does something.
2: But wait, I use garlic in a lot of my recipes. Does that mean they're not good for me?
0: Uh, I do too. My daughter makes fun of me that everything I cook begins with sauteing garlic and olive oil. (laughs)
2: That's
1: not bad. Uh, Vitamin E is another one. Remember, that was a big thing, right? Yes,
0: absolutely.
2: See? Ginkgo bolova.
0: Ginkgo. We could go on and on.
2: On and on and on.
0: Diane, what about you?
2: So one of my least favorite things that people sometimes say is that carbs are bad for you. Now, we all know, and Adam, especially being of Italian descent, knows that carbs are actually the ideal food. (laughs) It is true that a diet that is overloaded with simple sugary carbohydrates, um, especially in the form of soda or juice, is not a balanced diet. But complex carbohydrates like pasta, um, whole wheat breads, and other whole wheat grains are really actually good for you and also taste really delicious.
0: <laughs> Diets are so rough, though, because right there are people who have never been able to lose weight and end up losing weight because you know they give up carbs and they eat a lot of fat and they fill up so they don't eat as much, and so they then consider that gospel and as like evangelists, they try to convince everybody else in the world that they should give up carbohydrates.
2: Right. Although a lot of times what they're giving up is a lot of the junk food that was causing them to gain weight or not being able to lose weight. And there's nothing wrong with giving up a lot of the junk food.
0: I am on a high-carbohydrate, high-gluten diet. (laughs) Anyway, um, Scott, what about you? You got another
1: Well, this one I think probably heard as much from my family as from any of my patients. But if you go out without your sweater on, you're going to get sick. You get cold, you get sick. Now, there's no doubt if it's 20 below zero and you're in Chicago and you go out without anything on, you're probably going to die. But (laughs) with the exception of severe hypothermia, I don't think there's a lot of data that supports that getting cold is why you got pneumonia. You got pneumonia because you got pneumonia and it's probably unrelated to ambient temperature for most patients.
2: But my grandmother always told me that.
1: <laughs> my grandmother told me many things and I loved her for many of them, but I think she was wrong on this one. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: um, my next one, um, uh, this gets into a little bit of research here. It's it's that whole idea that drinking a little bit of alcohol is good, right? I think there was the pitch that there's a J-shaped curve and no alcohol is bad, a little bit of alcohol is good, a lot of alcohol is bad. And I think that mostly comes from you know terribly confounded studies, that if you're the kind of person who's wealthy enough and controlled enough to be able to actually have a life where you can drink one glass of wine a night... Probably everything else is working in your favor, and it's not that glass of wine that's working in your favor.
1: I mean, that's really the problem with all the diet studies. Um, Not all, but most is the fact that they're so confounded because they're not controlled. I mean, it's very hard to make, you know, hard and fast statements
0: about diet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Diane, we're up to you.
2: All right. Who thinks you need to do a colon cleanse every now and then to get rid of the toxins (laughs) in your bowel?
1: You mean you don't? I've been doing that all this time for nothing? You only
2: need to do that before your colonoscopy.
1: Oh, I really just like that procedure.
2: So
0: colon cleanse once every 10 years?
2: Exactly. Or <laughs> right. every five years if you have a lot of polyps. Sure.
1: You know, I don't understand that. Given how vociferously my patients complain about the colonoscopy prep, why would someone yeah, that's do right. this... If they weren't required to do it, right,
0: right, right,
2: right. I don't know the answer to that. Not to mention, it definitely would ruin your microbiome. Yeah, uh, Scott.
1: Um, well, this one has definitely gone by the way the, uh, the way of. I'm going to say this incorrectly. Wayside, but green nasal discharge or mm-hmm. green sputum suggests you need antibiotics. That was. Practice in practice 30 and 40 years ago yeah. when we started, or at least when some of us started. Um, but now we appreciate that that's just related to cellular breakdown and isn't actually bacterial colonies that you're coughing up and does not in and of itself tell you you need antibiotics. Yeah.
0: I've been getting a lot of post COVID calls lately where, you know, I had COVID, COVID's better, you know, I'm still coughing up some stuff. Do I need antibiotics now? And it's like, I think you just need to get through your COVID. Exactly. Um, My next one sort of gets to Diane's is that fruit juice is good for you. Um, I think the only time that I'm absolutely confident that someone who comes in with a hemoglobin A1C of 10 will be able to fix their diabetes is when I ask them about their diet and they say, well, pretty much... All I drink is fruit juice. Um, I know that that person, by cutting out their fruit juice, is going to be all better. Um, I think an orange is great, but, you know, six oranges in a glass of orange juice is probably a little bit of overkill. I mean, it has
1: as much sugar as Coca-Cola, right? I you know, as best I can tell, I've had a guess about this. I think what happened was the food industry had rotten fruit or fruit that they could no longer sell because it was bruised, and decided, let's make juice out of it and tell everybody it's healthy. But that's nuts. But
0: don't you think that's what happened? It is exactly what happened, actually. Tropicana had to figure out a way to sell more oranges, and this is what it is.
1: So now they're after us as well as the herbal people. You know, if we get knocked off in the next 24, 48 hours, we'll know who to look for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Diane?
2: All right. Um, A lot of people think if they're allergic to shellfish, it means that they're allergic to uh, intravenous contrast and they can't have... A study like a CAT scan with intravenous contrast, um, but they're not actually cross-reactive. People who are allergic to iodine might have a contrast reaction, but shellfish don't cross-react with contrast. Right.
0: The whole iodine anything kind of drives me crazy. Right. It's an element we actually need iodine, and so. It's a whole lot more complicated than that.
1: Same thing's true for sulfa, right? We have sulfa all through our bodies. Right. And so right. we say we have a sulfa allergy. I'm not sure I understand what that means, yeah. frankly.
0: Yeah. Okay, Scott, you got one more?
1: I do. Actually, this is uh, kind of a social phenomenon, but uh, cell phone use in the room. So it doesn't happen often, but every now and then I'll have a patient on their phone and or will decide they need to do something on their phone during the mobile visit. And I just think that's very rude. If I actually have to check my phone for a message related to a patient or something while I'm with the patient, I actually tell them what I'm doing so they understand I'm not just surfing the web in the middle of the visit because they're boring or something.
0: So it's okay if the doctor does it, but not if the
1: patient. As long does it. as I tell them, and it's an emergency, so that I make it clear why I've decided to interrupt a social encounter for my phone. Something I've had to deal with with various family members. I might say, and now I'm in trouble with them as well.
0: I think it's so interesting how that's changed because, like on the wards now, right? I, you know, I'm sort of fine on rounds with people picking up their phone and looking because I just assume that everybody's looking something up on date or whatever. Um, and a medical student I had with me just last week in clinic, you know, pulled out his phone. I was assuming always looking something up. And he said to me, you know, just to let you know, I'm looking something up. And it was it was a very nice professional thing to do, but it was almost like overkill because I feel like at this point, we've all adjusted to the fact that, you know, our phones are our little black books and that's what we use them
1: for. Your little blue books, your little black books actually referred to something different. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes, but we'll let that go. And I'll
2: stay out of that part of the conversation. <laughs>
0: um, and my last thing is um, that you need to take a vitamin. You know, I think, again, the vitamin market is trying to sell vitamins on people. And in the United States, eating a normal diet, you know, nobody needs vitamins. Um, And
1: eating a healthy diet, which might not be a normal diet, statistically speaking. uh, That's
0: a good point. That's a good point. Ah. Well, that was kind of cathartic, don't you guys think so? Uh, (laughs) Very cathartic. Okay, we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. Actually, maybe I should say, we hope you found all the podcasts useful. This one may not not Uh, have been as useful. Um, As a reminder, our textbook Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a fully searchable mode via the access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the X2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez.